0: Greetings and welcome to the Fifth Community Show. We are a group of internet randos brought together by a shared appreciation for lively discussion, considerate disagreements, and irreverent humor. Follow us on Twitter at Fifth Community. Find fellow seditionists by using the hashtag #fifthum and follow the Fifthum Club on Clubhouse. And as always, in the words of Camille Foster, "Be brave. Call bullshit."
1: The Fifth column Community Show podcast. I am here once again with Adrian Bonenberger. And Adrian and I were just kind of getting a quick warm-up because it's been a busy week and month for many of us. Uh so Adrian, um, we were talking about it just now, but basically, like my read on Ukraine has been since the last time we talked is okay, the Russians kind of came back, they went back to what they do, which is advanced by fire. Uh, and that it actually kind of worked for them for a little while. Um, and then they the Ukrainians realized it's really hard to move 155 shells because they're really big and really heavy. Uh, you can't just throw enough of them in the back of a Hilux and move them around and it's, it's easy to resupply. So they started hitting the train loads. We gave them HIMARS, which helps them hit trains even better. Um, and after that, it's just been a one, just just an ass whipping across Eastern Ukraine. Uh, and then there was the big counteroffensive, which we all knew was coming in Kursan. And uh, the big surprise was Kharkiv was so much more effective than people thought it wasn't, I guess today they took Lyman, Lehman. Um, that's kind of my read on it, but you had some other kind of insights that I thought were interesting. So, you know, tell me what I got wrong. Tell me what else you think is going on.
0: Well, to begin with, thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure to chat with uh, a fellow sky soldier.
1: <laughs> once upon oh, a uh, time. Yeah. Um, I
0: mean, I think you're right. I think it's uh, the the things, probably the single most important thing that I knew about Ukraine going back to um, May of 2015, when I saw them training with the 173rd. 173rd was in Yavariv, right outside Lviv. And I, I don't know if I, I mentioned this on a previous show, but the, the Ukrainian mil- like National Guard not even the active duty military but like national and their national guard's a little bit different from our national guard it's more of like a law enforcement entity it's a quasi-military like law- the Caribbean
1: area a little bit totally, Caribbean, yeah. totally
0: and and part of that is because legally under in the USSR the the military wasn't allowed to be deployed for domestic issues and 2014 was seen politically in some cases as a domestic issue. So the military at first wasn't directly deployed against the separatists. They were the Russians, they weren't separatists, they were Russians. Um, and so it was like one of those weird legal things. But I saw them training and they were fucking smoking it, man. They were like it was and, and, and we were we were doing them, uh, the, the, the 173rd was trying to train them on the soft knock. So, like, you basically in a village. Yeah. And then, and I don't know if I if, did I tell you this story. No,
1: right? no, but the idea of doing a soft knock in a forward line of troops environment boggles my mind. So, I'm surprised they were going for it.
0: We were training what we knew, you know? So, yeah. it's a bunch of 173rd dudes who were like, okay yeah. what was like in afghanistan was we know like
1: afghanistan and iraq not forward line of troops with like yeah i i imagine the Ukrainians like why the fuck would we do it this way this is some half-assed nonsense right yeah so
0: exactly and they didn't that so that was the funny thing I, and, and i remember there was there was some um there was a, a commander in the 173rd so he's like okay what i'm like i'm a reporter i'm like what am i watching here and he goes we're training them on soft knock they roll up and they roll up hard in like five vehicles, like real hard. Dudes jump out and they just clear it from you know one side of the town to the next. They're throwing flashbangs. Yeah. There's no knocking going on. Yeah. It's just like blasting. And so he's like, okay, uh, that was really good, but but we're gonna have to recock. and he turned to me and he was like, Yeah, man, like they just kind of don't know how to do soft, soft knocks. And I'm looking at this, I'm like, you don't need to know how to do anything. If you know how to do this, like, this is a live fire. They know how to do the thing. You know, the soft knock is something that you have to, you have to unlearn the hard knock and then like relearn. Hey, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, you're going, the hard, the hard
1: thing to learn is the the hard knock battle drill six. The easy thing to do is to fucking dumb it down and slow it down so that you can make it more palatable to a a population you're trying not to alienate, which is not a problem in a four line of troops environment where it is like, no, no, no. If you're on the wrong side of the line. And we get to you, like we're kicking indoors. And yeah, I mean, I'm sure the Ukrainians are mindful of like not wanting to hurt some of the old folks that are just trying to hold it out. Cause I mean, you see the videos of grandma coming out of the house and hugging hugging guys. But it's, I mean, yeah, you're not gonna do a the idea of teaching them a soft knock and then insisting on it is not like. It's right up there with military thinking to those people. It's like, oh, dude, we, 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 yeah, let's talk about the thing we, we did. And honestly, we didn't really do that even, right? Like, usually it was like we'd be the cordon and then it was the ANA or the, the, the local troops who would do like the soft knock to the town, village, whatever. Um, I, I'm bemused, but I, I get it. I get, I get why we would teach what we know, even though it's like, no, this won't be applicable in any way, shape, or form. And so what was
0: happening is I t- so then i talked to the various, you know, 173rd sergeants, uh, you know, staff sergeants, platoon sergeants, dudes who had been there, not the platoon leaders, because you know, the guys who who had who had yeah had a long time, and they were like, honestly, these guys are teaching us more about war than we're teaching them. Like, this is that's the, the truth. Like these dudes have like they've seen drone warfare. This is back in 20, uh, 2015. I'm talking about. Like yeah. these dudes have been in the trenches and shit. Like they've done this stuff. We're learning from them. And that was when I put two and two together. And I was like, man, you know, I I know Russia has this like super squared away, giant military, everything else. Like they're probably going to beat Ukraine. That's what everybody thought back then. But I was like, Ukrainians are going to put a severe hurting on Russia. Like that's because they could put a severe hurting on us. Like they they could hurt us if we were going to fight with them. And, and I knew that that's the only thing that I knew. And I think what we're seeing is that that military that came out of 2014, that came out of the crucible of 2014, when they didn't have one is, is strong and obeys all of the principles that you and I trained on, you know, when we were training, not the soft knock stuff, like the real war stuff. Yeah. And, um, you know, and, and the Russians appear not to be trained at all. Like the extent to which they're trained is for this World War One style, very like, very bot, like, like we're facing the front, the rear is secure, the rear is cleared. And so now our guns are pointing this direction and we can get all of the guns, the artillery and our machine guns pointed there shooting at the same time. The Ukrainian... They're fucking like just bypassing that. They're just flanking. Well, around.
1: I mean, it's it's advanced. That's why America does advanced five maneuver, right? Like if you want to beat someone that's going to do fires, it's like, okay, well, they're going to put all their fires in one spot or they're going to want to, right? So what's the first thing you do? You make them split their massive artillery pieces. And so they're at least pointing it to maybe three different directions. It's going to really reduce their, their ability to shoot at something they can't see. And then you just maneuver and you just keep maneuvering until like you get a hold of their supply lines and then they got to retreat. And if they can't get these huge pieces, I mean, there's a reason why America has that doctrine of advance by maneuver and use infantry to lead. And it's not, I mean, it's not, it's clearly, it's clearly effective. Now it helps that the Russians are also a disaster like when you talk about like the 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 russian military it's like they might have had guys that were competent they might have had like a good setup at first but they lost them all in the first two weeks they lost their like best guy best units in the initial attrition and it shows and it's why it's part of why they're just their command structure is a disaster i mean uh i think that you know just kind of looking at how things are going forward um um, without getting into the most recent stuff if it was just gonna be a battle about like territorial integrity for Ukraine from the Black Sea I I, I think Ukraine would absolutely smoke Russia all the way down into the Crimean Peninsula and if, even then I, I think they could maybe take it but it's harder in Crimea because it's if you don't if've never read any of the stories it sounds like the trains is, is much more bottlenecked and not uh, not conducive to really any kind of warfare. Which always gives a defender a massive advantage. Plus, the and the Russians have that resupply bridge, which sure you could knock it out, but uh that's hard without a navy. Although I'm sure it's there's some thoughts about how to do it. Um, you know, for me, it's kind of unfolded the way I keep thinking. Um, in terms of what you've been telling me, is that Putin must be all in on this. So Putin is now, you know, so he went all summer trying to basically cajole, uh, weirdly try to intimidate Ukraine. It clearly didn't play out that way. And now he's in this point where he's dealing with his own domestic affairs. So, I mean, I'm kind of, I'm torn because I'm not sure how to put it, but I kind of feel like Putin in his uh, zeal for this is starting to hit that point politically where he's going to start paying a real price domestically in Russia Um. And I, 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 you know, I mean, the questions that I have are about their equipment, if they're getting it from the DPRK, they're getting some kind of back-end deals from China, it's just, I don't know how long that can last. I just, uh, and I'll, that's kind of my thought on it going where we're at. Um, I think Putin's also determined to stick it out to winter because I think that he's like, well, I'm going to make the Europeans suffer a really fucking cold winter. I think that's uh, just something he's committed to at this point. Um, but what What do you think? What do you, you got on this?
0: Yeah, I agree. I think you're. I think that's uh, all. Of that is correct. Um, politically, so when I think about Putin, and I'm I'm going way out of my wheelhouse now, in talking about this is all stuff that I really only started paying attention to in the last year or so. Um, like everybody else, you know, I, I know what I read, uh, but it does seem to me that the, the smartest people I know say Putin is interested first and foremost in his domestic power. Like people say what he did in Ukraine in 2014 was about not appearing weak in the face of Euromaidan. So he sort of, he he saw an opportunity to take a piece of Ukraine that he wanted for a while anyway. Yeah. Like Russia always, the political class always wanted Crimea. I don't, I'm sure the people could care less about it. The people could go to Crimea on vacation when the Ukrainians had it, and now they can go out there on Ukraine on yeah. vacation still. So it's no change for most normal people, but the, some pol- political people wanted it. it. He got popular from that, so he's thinking to himself, "Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get more popularity." So he seems, as far as I can tell from the people that I read, to be motivated by um, a, a desire to remain in power and have influence, and have, for whatever reason, whether it's because he's afraid of losing power, because it'll he'll lose his life or ego or whatever. I don't know, I don't know the dude. Um, but if that's the case in a weird way, like the the this having backfired because Ukraine is going to end up making him less popular raises the stakes for the Russian population because now what he's looking at is those people in Russia who are actively posing a threat to his regime. I mean, he jailed Navalny. Yeah. He's been going after the leadership for a while. But when there are protests, like that's actually for him probably more of a threat than the Ukrainian war even. So I could see him sort of like, and and, and that's one of the reasons people. Well, listen.
1: and and, his, and I agree, and I think his answer to it is asinine. Oh, I'm gonna put you on the front and send you to Ukraine. Like, oh sure, right, exactly. That can't exactly. go wrong at all. Like that's just not. I mean, so there's some basic like. I mean, just basic levels of like thought process. I'm going to put people actively opposed to the war in the war. And I'm going to, what are you going to do? I'm going to march them in front of the tank. At which point they're, they're literally can just shout and jump and be like, Hey, we're here. that's honestly like, I mean, it's not like a good, there's no winning with that strategy, right? Like there's no, like, there's no, like, this is a fantastic idea. I, I mean, I, I was trying to dig through some old history stories um, about like Byzantine emperors who did shit like that. And it usually didn't pan out for them very well. Um, like, yeah. uh, you know, Shaka Zulu and stuff would take some of his captured people and put them in the front. It He, he did it. For, I mean, he even said he is like, as a good example of a commander realizing he made a mistake. It was a horrible idea. It got his men, like they attracted unwanted attention when they got close, you know, it just caused problems. So it just doesn't make sense. And that's, I, I mean, I think that's part of the whole, russian war experience right now is we're going to do just these asinine basic things that i mean look good from some crazy authoritarian perspective but in terms of like actually trying to accomplish the task or detrimental at a at, at minimum if not catastrophic
0: yeah especially with like you said before you know the the ukraine shifted its strategy to focus more on logistics and it there wasn't a shift so much as they really They stopped trying to fight Russia at Russia's strength points um, directly and and emphasize that more because they've been doing stuff like that since the beginning, according to their ability. But I mean, you mobilize 300,000 or a million people and you're not training them. You're just throwing them out to the front like they're, you know it's tough to get food and and those occupied areas of Ukraine haven't been generating a lot of food (laughs) food taken out. Like there's, there's just nothing for them Like you're, you're creating more problems for yourself than you are solutions. And I totally agree with you that that, like that idea of the horde of, of hundreds of thousands, like, Oh, well, this is what we did in the USSR. Well in the USSR, firstly you had a ton of stuff from the United States coming over from Alaska. Through Siberia, but secondly, there was a legitimate threat that everybody understood, which was that the Nazis were going to kill you. Like it was like, okay, the commissar is going to kill me, or the Nazis are going to kill yeah, me. I if, guess I gotta fight. Something. Yeah, and well,
1: I mean, I to me, comparing Russia when Russia tries to invoke its specter of World War II, I'm like, you mean when like you were going to be killed if you were a guy, or raped if you were a woman, if you were a Russian? That was how it was going to go. It's part of why when the Russians you know went through Eastern Europe and just destroyed. The German occupation, uh, they did the same thing. Um, it was part of why, I mean, honestly, in the press, it was underreported in the United States. And I had, my grandfather had a lot of friends from World War II who were like, we didn't give a shit about the Germans. We were damn. They, at that point, I had a, I mean, I had a, he had a friend who was a I must've been in the 82nd and I can't remember his name, but I'll never forget. And I was like six or seven. It was like, we should have killed all the Japanese and Germans and made them U S (laughs) States just straight up like genocidal level of contempt for both, both main adversaries. Just, um, so that's just like that, that kind of hate. You don't, you can't, you can't train that. (laughs) That's kind of something that someone has to earn for whatever reason. But yeah, I mean, he, I Just remember as 67 like this dude talking about killing would have killed like 55 million innocent people or you know passive people in the system because he was just that he hated them so bad. And with with what's going on with this now, I just I mean the Soviet Union of 1938 and Stalin and then 1941, those just they're not even the same animal, and then you also have to factor in the, the Germans. I mean, he, Hitler was a bad general and overcommitted his forces in the East famously. So I, yeah, I don't quite understand where that mentality comes from, because it's this is just a ton of literature on like how to fight a war that says this is a horrible idea and not to do it. Um, I think part of it though, Adrian, goes to um, when we see militaries or military establishments that are more domestically focused, try to fight external foes, it just, they have this problem, this learning curve of like, okay, it's one thing to, you know, go police up a city in your border town It's a whole other thing when you're facing an organized force that is out to kill you and is not, does not have any fear for you. And when you lose and they smell blood in the water is that you're scared of them. It's a whole different vibe for these forces.
0: Yeah. I think I, I, I don't know if it was in the last month or maybe two months, but there was some point where I, I think it was it it was it was around the mobilization because I honestly, I was a little worried when I wasn't talking about it in public. I'm talking about it in public here now, but I was worried when he declared that mobilization because I was thinking like, you know, if he does this right, this is actually what he needs to do. He needs to train up an army of about a million, probably give or take active duty, well-trained, well-resourced. And that's probably about what he needs to take Ukraine you know, to, to, to take and hold territory and keep moving forward. He's not doing it that way, thankfully. But that's when he saw that, I was like, man, I'm pretty worried about that. And then it became clear even within the first couple of days that they were getting mobilized, put on a bus, given a weapon and sent to the, sent to the the front lines, totally different animal. And then I started thinking like, when's the last time there's been like a modern military that was faced up against, against a military that essentially wasn't modern, was just dudes with rifles. And you probably have to go back to like, I mean, the colonial era where you've got, I don't know, like 5,000 British dudes against a bunch of dudes with like, you know, the first army has been wiped out, like the the, the army of of competent, you know, competent Indian army, empire empire army. Uh, And now it's just sort of like, you know, dudes who have been conscripts. you wash them like it doesn't matter how many dudes you've got if 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 you've got a million dudes who are faced off with a hundred thousand, an army of a hundred thousand that army of a hundred thousand is gonna like
1: wreck them i mean usually that's definitely how it goes um I was thinking uh you know you colonial era with China would would kind of jump into my mind um kind of the show and not show and Lai, but before um the da- right, right around the Dowager Empress would be kind of a, a similar thing that military versus like a modern military kind of a thing. I, I mean, mean, what
0: about really quickly, just, uh, what about when our military, another good example might be when our military faced off, uh, Gulfs, uh, the, the, the first Gulf war against Saddam's, which was a giant army, but it was like, that's the first time that you'd seen T-72s go toe to toe with
1: Abrams, with,
0: Abrams yeah. that could fire on the move. And like, We wrecked them in three
1: days, wrecked them. Yeah. Or, I mean, I mean, the close, I think Vietnam would be something else to throw out there. Our army versus the North Vietnamese who were supplied and more, you know, better organized. I mean, yeah, we could, we won every battle, could hold territory and stuff, but we couldn't ever get to them. But that's a counterinsurgency and that's a little different. Um, In terms of, I mean, you know, for me, it's like, the, the things that Putin has done, and, and and we'll get to the mobilization bit now, is the partial mobilization, which is like, why are you partially mobilizing? I mean, to me, it's like you should go all in, Vlad. If you're like committed to this, then you're going to have to go all in at some point. And then the thing that is just um, is the shadow the, over everything is he's. It's not an idle threat when he says, "I will use nuclear weapons to if you violate Russian integrity." Like that's not. I he I think he is serious about that and that and and i think that would have immediate catastrophic repercussions but i don't think he's speaking idly i think he means it now does that mean he could actually execute it is part of where i kind of get like oh i'm going to i'm ordering these nuclear weapons i could easily see some some like some links in the chain decide we're not going to go that way totally doable but it doesn't mean he wouldn't issue the order
0: yeah we're um So with the mobilization piece, I think, you know, my take on this is, and reading the same, a lot of the same sources you probably do, and looking at Russia, not as a Russia expert for better and for worse. It seems to me that the reason he hasn't declared a full mobilization is the people who want a full, like to fully mobilize Russia for war, the people who are asking for war and for that mobilization, that will give them power. And the power they want is not the power to take Ukraine. The power they want is the power to take NATO, to yeah. take on NATO, to defeat NATO, to take Poland, the Baltics, Finland. I don't think they could at this point. I think if that was their agenda for 10 years from now, and they raise an army of a million and trained it, who fucking knows? You know, that 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 thing ends up in World War III. But like, that's what they want to do. They want Poland and the Baltics at a minimum. They want Belarus, and they probably want Finland back too. So I think for him it's like he can't he can't do that because to do that means now he's signed up for a war that he know he knows he can't win like say what he will. And then with the nuclear war thing, it's like then he gets he gets into sort of the same catch 22, doesn't he which is that if he starts deploying nuclear weapons, you and I both know there's no such thing as a tactical nuke. A nuke is a strategic weapon. It's 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 a strategic and almost like a political weapon. Yeah. Once you use it, you can no longer not use it. And what if he starts nuking Ukraine and the Ukrainians keep fighting? Which I actually think would happen. You know, like he's he he wants the e- he wants there to be an easy way out, and it's war. He rolled the fucking iron dice. There is no easy way out of war. You know. Then he's the guy who dropped nukes. I don't think the Chinese are going to be too happy about that. Uh,
1: I mean, I I concur. I think that if he drops nuclear weapons, there are incredible consequences, but there's no – hes openly said it. So I don't think he's – I don't think it's an idle threat. I think he's – I don't know what his decision point on it is. And again, I don't know if it could actually be executed within the the Russian state, but I do think he – like it's it's there, it's out on the table, and what are you know? I mean, Zelensky's called it nuclear blackmail, and I'm you know my my expertise in Russian politics is not really an expertise in Russian politics. It's an evaluation of kind of a lot of a synthesis of a lot of different authors who I trust who've written about it, from Taibbi to uh, Greenwald to whoever. Uh, you know, basically people who have seen a lot of different ways. Typically, it's it's honestly it's usually from the left because it's, for whatever reason conservative authors in America have not been interested in Russia until very recently, which is its own weird thing. Um, and I mean you're right because he is he's got that that weird quasi Soviet nationalist vibe on his side that wants the mobilization that wants to have the third world war that is mad at Gorbachev and happy he's dead and all of that stuff and uh, has always been there and hasn't really had the political power for obvious reasons um, between the political cl- between aspects of the political class the people of russia they've never wanted to put them in power because it would be potentially catastrophic to be engaged in fact it almost certainly would be with nato especially but um they are they are there i just you know i think that he is committed to he, it, to me, it's weird the way he's done the the mobilization because you're either you like you said it's iron dice of war like you're either going to be all in on this or you need to be off ramping fast. He's clearly not off ramping fast. He's clearly committed to just I'm going to hurt Europe, um, you know. And now we get into the crazy shit recently with the Nord Stream one pipeline about whether or not it was like oh it's a U.S. thing. I'm like, I don't know. Uh, if that makes any goddamn sense to anybody, but some delusional people who have some weird like fetish about how the U.S. is somehow responsible and, and is conniving, because like when you think about what what debilitating that pipeline does, uh, it, it just doesn't make sense strategically. Like, if like oh, well, it causes the Europeans to like have to come to us quicker. And I'm like, they're already on our side pretty strongly at this point. They're not they're not like uh, they're not hes- hesitant about being pro America at this point given what's gone on and the strategic I mean if we're gonna get even you know if we want to get kind of nihilistic about it I guess uh, if you're gonna do something like that as an act of sabotage you wouldn't get caught to the point where like oh there's a ship it totally could have been the US you would not you know we're better than that it would not be something that would be so obvious. And then the other bit of it is timeline-wise. You'd wait until December. You wouldn't do it in October. You would do it when there's the mass, the most demand, and you wanted it to be the most critical to, And you wouldn't screw it up so like it's only part of it, and the other part of it still works. Like that. Like this has all the hallmarks of some half-assed like Russian that got drunk on vodka and just decided to like, oh, we're gonna do this thing, and uh, Putin probably signed off on. This is what the hallmarks of it are. But even then am I saying the Russians did it? Fuck. No, I'm not saying that. I don't know who did it. I just know it, it, it from the perspective of like, does it make sense for us to do it? No. And the hallmarks of it look like this, but that doesn't mean they did it either. It, it's that's my thought on kind of recent events.
0: Yeah. I, I agree with that. My, my instinct says it's the, every everything about it leads me to believe that it's the Russians who did it. And after the Russians, I think the, the 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 number two suspect is the Ukrainians, either with help from some other third party. the poles would be my bet. <laughs> yeah, the poles or someone in the Baltics, like everybody that's exactly the type of thing that the the Ukrainians, you know, would they would, would do that. want to do. yeah, but the other thing is, I don't think they it's not that they don't have the capability. It's that that versus any other thing they could possibly do, like in hersan, or in the front. Why account? devote?
1: Yeah, time, resources, all of it. Why would you do that? Total. Like it, it, the risk versus reward payoff matrix for them is is like it could. Oh well, we get this one little thing, but it makes us look catastrophically bad. I don't know if they want that. I think that yeah. for them, that the payoffs are the payoff that they want. They can get other ways.
0: If you're gonna do, I think the dumbest, like most ridiculous thing that the Ukrainians could do that that would almost be worth gambling, like a lot, of, like some effort on would be stealing a nuke, like stealing a nuke for Ukraine. Like if, if a nuke is missing, then I'm going to say that was probably the Ukrainians, you know what I mean? Like I that's could, the type of thing where I'd be like, okay, that, cause that's what they want. That's the thing that they will have, like the capability they need to face down Russia to say, okay, if you nuke us 100%, you're getting nuked. That's the only thing that they could that they. Well, I mean, yeah, yeah,
1: that's like you said on Twitter. Like, what's the deterrent rate of nuclear armed countries? It's never. No one's ever invaded a nuclear armed country. It just that's the deterrent rate. Which, there you go. So, um, I mean, I think that's kind of it. But I, I mean. This kind of get, that. Well, the nuclear thing gets interesting to me real quick because it goes back to like we're trying to get Iran to see this at any time. And I'm actually going to call out Eli Lake and I hope he's listening to this. Like, anytime you mention to people that are like really pro Israel about how clearly it would be foolish for Iran to abandon its nuclear desires given the current situation, uh, they just shut up. They don't even acknowledge it. They don't even go into the, like, oh, yeah, you know, it's like from every other, from any independent, somewhat. Somewhat thoughtful angle. I'm pretty sure you can see that the giving up nuclear weapons in the 90s for Ukraine proves to be a catastrophic decision 30 years later. And why would you do the same thing if you're Iran? Like you have you have a clear you have a clear example of what happens when you do that. Like you have two actually. You have Syria, which whatever, uh, not uh, and Libya, um, which is you know that's the the one where they have all the stories about. But then you have this where here was a European nation that gave up its nuclear weapons and now is being invaded by its larger, much more militaristic neighbor. Why are we going to bail on that with Saudi Arabia and you, Israel, in our backyard? But um, again, I, I absolutely call them out. I invite them to debate that, but they're going I want someone to prove to me why if you're Iranian, you would look at this and go, yeah, I'm going to do this deal. Uh, the JCPOA to me from an Iranian perspective it's like, we get money, which we'll get back eventually at some point in the future, any fucking way, uh, no matter how you cut it. Um, and if we get nuclear weapons, well, we don't have to worry about you invading us, or if it's much less chance of you invading us. So we get a, a, a huge measure of security. And I, I just want someone, and I know you're not really like on the, the that side. I want someone out there to explain to me why, A, they don't talk about it, why they like somehow pretend Ukraine isn't happening and B to explain why if you're Iranian you would take the you would do a deal I mean even now with Iran and its troubles I still don't see whatever comes out of it let's say they have a revolution let's say it's a pure democracy there's no fucking way the Iranian street is going to be like yeah you know we're going to abandon our quest for nuclear weapons that's not on the table man I just don't I'm curious why people even pretend that it is
0: yeah I think and this is one of the things back in 2014, um, you know, I, I, I've been on Ukraine's side, I guess, so the side of the Ukrainian people as uh, their will as expressed in Euromaidan and after. And I know a lot of people who are a part of that movement and, you know, very sincere people, uh, very idealistic people and yeah. the type of people that I vibe with as an American, you know, as as a patriotic American,
1: even. Well, Somebody defend, from, I mean, it's defending your home territory, like it's their yeah,
0: land. That's right. Yeah. And so, you know, I I said in 2014, when um, Barack Obama, for whom I, I voted for that guy twice, and I said, you know, look, man, you know, if 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 Ukraine is permitted to lose territory to a nuclear armed neighbor, you are never, ever going to be able to credibly deter a country developing a nuclear weapon again. Never, never. Why would you? Why no. why would unless in, unless they're incredibly stupid or gullible why would they say we're not going to do this when they can just point to Ukraine and say oh yeah they had like whatever it was 1500 nukes and I've, I've i've some people have said like well you know actually the nukes had sort of uh you had there was a code on them and it would have taken a long time Yeah they had pal to- codes
1: so there's ways to I mean, it's not rocket they science. Could have gotten through that. They could have figured it, it
0: out. Yeah. The code isn't the problem. The problem is the nuclear weapon.
1: Yeah. It's not how you. Re- oh, well, it's hard to release. Like, that doesn't change that they could have done it. And the values, yeah. if they had 50 nukes now, I don't think they'd be. I don't even know if Crimea would be in Russian hands. Let's put it that way. Totally. Um, so, yeah, I, I, that's something I, I would like. Uh, the other thing that I, I got a kick out of, not kick out of, it's actually fucking horrible and tragic, but it's, um, it's something we had talked about on one of the earlier podcasts, was the whole <sighs> calling him Russian would probably not be quite accurate. Uh, the, the dude from somewhere in the heart of Russia castrating the guy with the box cutter on Telegram. Uh, And then killing him afterward, the Ukrainian soldier. Now we talked about this before, after the Buka thing, but this is exactly what I said was going to happen. They found out who that guy was within like two days, like who he is, like his home address. Uh, And I don't, I mean, I, he, I highly doubt he's going to survive the war if he's not dead already. Um, But this goes back to like war crimes like that. And like, there's two things about it that, that I think are um, revealing. One is a level of Russian discipline that just doesn't exist of like basic, Hey, I mean, he turned on a cell phone, used a cell tower to broadcast this thing that we knew, that people knew within hours where it had happened uh, and what, what had gone on and who he is. I mean, just all, just all of that like immediate open source type stuff, um, which... I think that is a new thing in war. I think that's like the, the granular accountability, like that dude, the Russians might hang him out to dry at the end of the war because he did it right. Like, I don't think, and this goes back to the discipline. I don't think he got arrested. I don't think any MP came to him and said, Hey, you know, you literally, you took video, you and your buddies took video castrating a, a live male and uh, you're in jail. Like we're going. To, that's a blatant violation of law and land warfare. It immediate. No, no, they didn't do that. This, that's just not how it works. Um, so I was just wondering, kind of, what your thoughts about that whole disastrous thing was, and just kind of, you know, what your what your thoughts are, kind of going forward.
0: Yeah, I, I again, I agree with you. It's it's that that's particularly uh, disgusting and repellent uh, and cowardly. Uh, I can't think of a more cowardly thing to do in a situation like that. Um, And I mean, I remember in our first deployment, you know, was 2007. So that was like, you know, Facebook was there. And I remember people talking about that being like, well, you know, I'm deploying. You don't want to put like photos of your wife or your parents up or stuff like that because the terrorists will know about it. Or like people posting in, in my second deployment, sometimes people would post during operations. They'd take photos of themselves, like with fucking machine gun or whatever. 10th Mountain, so it wasn't quite as disciplined <laughs> as 173rd. Um, but, you know, still quite disciplined. And uh, and I, I, I mean, we talked about th- these are things that could happen and we knew that. But we also were, I think, you know, overall, you know, pretty decent. Over there, like I didn't see, I never, never saw a war crime happen. I heard about things that were sort of like, I, I didn't approve of them—not explicit war crimes, but like I didn't approve of a, a, a thing that I heard about happening on the first deployment and the second deployment. I thought I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't have done it that way. But I think most soldiers, you know, most of the guys who were over there, uh, you know, ourselves included, were over there essentially to give people who clearly had like. Fuck all in the whole country, just a little bit like roads and like potable drinking water. And we thought, you know, you know, if they get that when we leave and they've got that before they didn't have that, then there's been a little bit of progress here over the last fucking thousand years. You know, their lives are going to be a little bit better. I, we I didn't see anybody like beat the shit out of an Afghan for just no fucking reason. I didn't see like I'm sure the NDS like yeah, like but that's some Afghan stuff. That's Afghans and, and Afghans. But you know like with this type of thing now, like the Ukrainians are actually using that info like to target places like they were doing that in the beginning of the war like russian russian dudes were fucking uploading their positions on telegram you know half an hour later boom boom, boom yeah we know you're
1: you pillars. must be within so many feet of this thing yeah you're exactly right you know war
0: war war has changed and i i think it's i think the implication you keep talking about discipline and the the, the lack of discipline in the russian military and i think that's exactly right that in the future, a profe- you will only be able to have very professional militaries if you want to avoid that type of thing happening. Conscript armies, straight fucking out. like No way.
1: Basically, you know? yeah. I mean, unless it's some kind of massive world war conscript armies. I, I, you're right. I don't think you could do it. But yeah, I'm just agreeing. And that,
0: and that out of necessity, like a conscript army is something that like, okay, hey, if the, if the US was invaded, then me and like whatever, like uh, 500 of our neighbors would get together with rifles and everything else, whatever ammo we could carry and try to help the U S military. And that is what it is, but that's because we've been invaded, not because we're invading another country.
1: Well, yeah, it's like, that's the the military exigency, right? Like, Hey, the whole world is in a very different place. So now, you know, if you're, if you're uh, 45 and under, you're all going to come join the military and we're going to do the thing and best, you know, sorry, but tough luck. And that's just because the situation's changed. But I I mean, I think it's, again, it's interesting because, yeah, you're right. They were doing the micro-targeting, but to me, the war crime aspect of like literally, because I mean, one of the huge things we had an issue with after um, the uh, Kosovo-Yugoslavia breakup, basically for the entire 90s, was trying to run down these war criminals. And I mean, you know, this all took them 20 years to round them up and stuff. And now we're looking at having... Like we'll have you in two hours. We'll know who you are. We'll know where you live in your in your home country, even which is extra insane. And I mean, it goes back to like like that buka commander. There's a good chance that even if he gets to go home, that's the kind of shit people will like find you in your home for, uh, and and bring your ass somewhere else um, for other things. So I, I think that's going to bring a level of accountability to it and discipline. Um, to militaries because yeah it's just the we know we know if you're enforcing the laws and we know that like hey you know the dude the cowboy hat castrated to do the box cutter knife ended up dead six days later you didn't arrest him so you're not enforcing these laws of land warfare so that's another complaint um, that has I mean people forget Russia's still in a lot of this stuff where they would be legally technically liable for it and there's money that would have to be issued out and Russia is going to need every dime it's got the way things are going. Um, I just, I, I think that that is the, to me when I think of things that are bigger than the war, that is something that is going to be bigger than the war. That's going to persist after this war and it's going to change warfare for the foreseeable future.
0: Interesting. And it certainly seems to be of a piece with the, the revolution that's happening in our society around social media for better and for worse, which is that, you know, strangers can see something that you put out, you 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 posted something that you did, good, bad, whatever, and a lot of people see it. And and now it is, it, it no longer belongs to you. It doesn't even belong to your country in a sense, you know, people lose their jobs, people yeah. get canceled or people get elevated, people get sort of celebrated, who yeah. never would have
1: been celebrated before. Well, I mean, in in veteran culture, especially, right? You'll see stuff like that. I mean, sometimes it's like we're, it's oftentimes, honestly, I think it's way over the top. Like so-and-so, I remember some private made a tweet about how they hid in the back of a pickup truck for Reveille and vets just jumped out of the woodwork to scream at her. I'm like, wait a minute. I vividly remember sprinting at full speed at 4.59 p.m. to the door. And you're going to, what? Don't be a dick. Don't be a dick for this. Or like the other one, the woman who like had the, like the, this like might've been the one of the first internet cancellations, but she had a picture of herself at like uh, Arlington in front of the, do not make noise sign, like screaming. And people lost their mind about the disrespect and the rage. And I'm like, dude, I remember people climbing into ovens and Dachau to take pictures of themselves, lighting cigarettes off of the, and you're going to. Are you telling me that like our our sensibilities are so sensitive around this particular issue, we can't remember that we all have a dark sense of humor, like that it's not always like fuzzy wuzzy G rated humor. Sometimes it's really dark. It's okay to have a dark sense of humor. She didn't mean to like insult. She's not like pissing on the grave of some dead veteran. She's trying to have a make a funny photo.
0: Yeah, I um, I don't know about the the. Is that how, uh,
1: yeah, that's was, a personal one. Not being, of me. Cause I don't yeah. smoke. <laughs> uh,
0: yeah. I, 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 I feel like I would have felt compelled to, uh, to, to, to offer uh, a corrective suggestion if I were, if I had seen something like that happen. The happening. joys of
1: being an <laughs> officer.
0: <laughs> yes, that's right. The luxury, the privilege,
1: the privilege, but,
0: but to your point. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like, that's exactly like you said, the dudes who did Buka, who did the box cutter, yeah, just sick fucking shit, man. Yeah, sick shit. Yeah, that's like uh good luck living in Russia. Um, hope you never take a vacation anywhere else because there are more yeah. people now <laughs> like, oh, he's going to Cyprus. He's in Cyprus right now. Fucking good. You know,
1: yeah, <laughs> yeah there's yeah, now he's in Cyprus. There is you're gonna go you maybe, maybe. I'm not even a guarantee, you might be able to go visit Iran or the DPRK. Maybe. maybe. Not even yeah. guarantees for play. you know, whoever, I need a vacation. I want to go to the DPRK. That sounds like everyone's destination of choice, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, that, yeah, you will be stuck in whatever country you're in, provided they'll even allow you to do it. And I think that's, that's the thing. Like, that's, it was disgusting when I heard about it. I didn't go watch the video because I don't need to fucking see that. Um, I, if, if it's made up and fictitious, my apologies, uh, to, <laughs> for getting it wrong, but I, I read a, a ton about it. Cause I was like, wait a minute, they, this really happened. And I'm like, this seems this I, at first, like, this is too, this is too out there to be true. My, right? this is too, like, this is like, I'm Michael Tracy for a second. Like, this can't be real. This is nuts. And sure enough, like everything I reported, every trusted source, uh, every, no one said it isn't real. No one's denied it. Uh, not even, I, I mean, I was looking for RT Russia denials. They didn't deny it. And apparently the guy got like, they started sending pictures of the dude with eggs, which I guess is some kind of like slang for nuts. Uh, and in Russia thinking it was kind of funny and yeah, whatever That's that's I get it. I live next to Portland. I know what it feels like to be around a population of people that are kind of idiots. Um, so there's that, and um, that kind of gets to me. The next thing, which is the reporting on the war and how all of a sudden, uh, the like the left has become pro-Putin in a way, in, in a way, especially in the last couple of weeks. I mean, it goes from like Edward Snowden becoming a Russian citizen, which I get it. There are some real reasons why he would do that, uh, all the way to. Michael Tracy basically saying that the US was against being in World War II. Polling showed it was bad, which to be fair to Michael Tracy, he was absolutely right until December 7th, 1941. He was totally 100% correct until that thing happened that changed everyone's mind. Um I, I guess we could just pretend that didn't happen in Michael Tracy land, but whatever. Uh is just some of the coverage. I was wondering what you think as a former reporter of some of this stuff.
0: Yeah, I I mean, I'm somebody who probably started out as a moderate with progressive leanings politically and then went fully into progressivism and even, you know, the left Um, around 2016. I was a Bernie Sanders guy. I was really switched on by that campaign and the way that it, you know, it, it also, it was like the first time that I ever saw a politician in my lifetime that seemed consistent to be standing for something, and it was just very new. I was like, "Hey, this dude has just been saying the same thing for 40 years." Like, I, I want to hear. I, like, let's examine this. But uh, you know, one of the things that I've noticed in the left, a lot of the people that I connected with then, um, about 70% of them are reactionaries. Like, look, if you like Putin, then you're a reactionary. That's what you are. That's what Putin is selling. He said he's selling. Political reactionaryism. He's not a Nazi, but he's like on that side of the spectrum. Like he's into fascism. He's into um, a a very, very narrow definition of Christian nationalism with, you know, yeah, Russian elements. Well, I mean, uh if you like that, that's fine. But that's on the right, that's not on the left. So you see people on the left, and I don't think what it is with them, I don't think what it is, is that they like that stuff. If they do, they're reactionaries, they're not leftists. But I think what's more likely the case, as far as I've seen, is that these are people who are so anti-American, actually. They believe that America is an evil empire. They want to see the destruction of the United States, they want to see the destruction of Europe, that they would happily watch a fascist destroy these things. And so that's, that's where a lot of the, not the left, but uh, people who inhabit a, a politically left space and vote for leftists think. And I, and I, think, it's, I think it's disgraceful. Again, I think of myself now uh, in part, having seen that as a patriotic American, and the extent to which I still empathize with their position is, I do believe that there are a lot of a lot of the critiques that I first heard from Bernie Sanders on a national level. Like, I think those are those are valid critiques. I think our healthcare system is a fucking disgrace. It's in a shambles. I think the what we allow businesses to get away with when it comes to the profitability of the, phar- the big pharma companies is outrageous. It should outrage people. I think the fact that we've allowed our infrastructure to crumble the way that it has is terrible. I think we spend too much in the military itself on the wrong things. Like look at the F-35 yeah. Well we before. can't we're, I mean,
1: talk- <laughs> we're talking about
0: sending F-16s to Ukraine because F-16s will smoke the dog shit. Out of the fucking Mig thirty or whatever, we know that like shit that we were flying in the eighties and nineties is one hundred percent capable against a near peer threat. This is part so that-
1: of so you like this. My wife took me to uh, took my wife took me to Top Gun Maverick because I do not give a shit about that show, and I'm watching it. And I'm like, you know, this is all just a giant sales pitch for like we need to have another fighter. And I'm like, well, I'm not sold on any of that at all and uh you know I, and it's i i i didn't i don't like i, I just didn't like it i kind of am with Milmar on his like this is just a giant like sales job for the us navy I'm like look at how great shit is but we need more great shit because the f18 is somehow losing a dogfight um uh you know Well, and then you talk about the F-35 and frankly, the F-35 is just, uh, for those of you who don't know, what makes the F-35 special is it uses, it's a communications platform, really. And what I mean by that is it's supposed to be a fighter jet. It's really fucking heavy for a fighter jet. So it doesn't have the movement of a fighter jet. So why is this thing like killing every aircraft it encounters? Well, fun fact, it must have some kind of crazy, a communication RF whatever you want to call it like setup that makes it so it's invisible to the other lock systems out there and its own lock system must be dead on. So the missile does all the work in the fight. Um, that's the only way it will work out. It's the only thing it could possibly be. There is no alternative. I've talked to some of the F-35 ground crew guys and they talk about how they have to switch this thing on for it to be dominant in its trials or it doesn't work. So there's a little bit of news. Yeah. The thing yeah. is, it, it, it's it's just one of those, it is a communicate. I call it a communications platform because what it must be doing is, is an effective kind of, it, we would, calling it jamming is oversimplification, but what it must be doing is getting the information that the other birds are putting out in their targeting systems through whatever, most of them use some infrared setup and basically feeding it back to them in a way it, that they can't comprehend. Interesting. Yeah, and, I, and the problem with that is it's breakable. It'll be caught. Some, it's the same thing with the F7, F-117, F the Nighthawk. The reason why they figured that what they did in, um, to shoot it down over uh, Bosnia was basically, okay, you have this crazy skin on it and you have all these like profile things that make it harder for our radar to do it. Well, what, what happens if we basically ping you with… Ultra high frequency radiation, microwave shot, basically in a huge burst. It's going to show up because anything will show up if we do that. Then that's what happened. And then they they found it. And since it didn't have like the, the the engine speed and all the other stuff you would want, they could shoot it down using a, a, a array of tactics, basically. And then you know proved that they could knock out a Pave Hawk, which I think is what the thing was. I got big in aviation stuff as I got out. And the F-35 is one of those things that bothers me to this day because it's not a fighter jet. The F-22 is a real fighter jet. The F-35 F thirty five is a bullshit communications platform that eventually will be replaced by something that actually is a real fighter jet that can probably do the same thing that it's doing um, with half the weight.
0: My point is with that stuff is like, no, no, t- totally. It's like, here we are throwing ungodly amounts of money on R&D for a thing to be uh, like something that we've imagined. Now we don't want to end up behind our competitors. Nobody's saying that, but like it's not that we're behind our competitors. It's not that we've made investments to pace our competitors. It's not that we're making investments to stay a step ahead of our competitors, which would be the F22. We're talking about two or three steps ahead of our competitors, When you know, as I recall, like we just—it seemed to me in Italy, like it was tough to get money to train, like live fire ranges. We had one live fire range. Well, I mean, all that stuff.
1: Italy is different, right? Like if we were at Fort Bragg, where like commanding officer famously could like show up Monday morning pissed at his wife, and then everyone was in the field for the the whole week. It's a different story, Um, because we had to have the Caribbean Air Escort wherever we went, right? And that that took at least thirty days out.
0: Yeah, that's part of it. But, but even even in the 10th Mountain Division, it was, you know, it that's surprising it was a, stuff was going overseas. Was yeah. uh and 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 if if we want to looking at the Ukrainians and looking how we train tra- looking at how they train and what is successful against a true near-peer military, why why aren't we saying, okay, well, let's yeah, let's be yeah. serious about this. Offer soldiers more money, make sure that we've got you know, we're meeting our recruiting, uh, to make sure that everyone's got the, what they need to train to be that military.
1: I, I laugh because, of, you know, the army famously screwed up this year in recruiting. Um, and it's not surprising though. You, people should have seen this coming, right? Like if you were delayed entry program, December of 2001, uh, you didn't actually show up in the military until June, 2020, uh, June, 2002, which means your 20 year retirement was June, 2022. So that shouldn't have been a surprise but apparently you know people don't want to do math and figure out like oh hey these dudes did it 20 years after 9-11 fucking hated it and were eager to leave the moment they hit the 20 it shouldn't be a shocker um and then you'll probably see a few you know i say 2001 to 2000 to really the iraq invasion you'll probably see that burst and then you're so i I said the next two years you're gonna see kind of a exodus of dudes hitting their 20s that joined up after 9-11 and I'm done and are heading out the door. Um, but no, I get where you're coming from. And I get what you're saying with the Bernie Sanders stuff. Like everyone, if you want to come at Bernie Sanders for something, it's not a lot to say. Like the guy has been basically the same on the same issues forever. People, I mean, he got hit by Hillary Clinton for guns because he's from Vermont. And if you know anything about Vermont, it's like, dude, there's a rural state anywhere that's rural people gonna want to shoot because they have, they have bigger, the, the biggest risk for them is getting drunk behind the wheel of a car it is not gun violence. It is so good. Like gun violence is below heart disease in these places. Dude. And it's meat, man. It's meat on your table. They're like, literally, yeah. Like literally these dudes are hunting for some, for better food than you're going to get at your grocery store. So these are dude alone because he, I mean, well, I think the, I'm more of a centrist lefty. I somewhere around here have the, the vital center by the court historian, Arthur Schlesinger jr. I think we the center screwed up in two things in the left, which is one of them was we've backed these ridiculous policing policies that have led to over-incarceration for shit that no one cares about. No one gives a shit about somebody doing cocaine in their bedroom. I don't care. I don't think anybody really cares. Uh, and nobody gives a shit about, oh, well, you broke uh, a window. And you're trespassing to steal the television, but since you have a handgun on you, that's a sentence enhancer. So now, in what was like a pretty a standard B and E with like some self protection in case, oh the ho- not if you're like, oh, the homeowner like it's not for the homeowner, it's for your buddy who's going to may- maybe shoot you to take this, the TV to sell or to take the the whatever you've got the car you've stolen. That's what the handgun is for. It's usually not for whoever has the property. It's for the guy they're trying to sell it to. And now you're doing 20 years and hard time. You know, those kinds of things, I think, where the center-left really screwed up. There's a lot to be done about I, Anyway, we're getting way off of the Ukraine stuff, and I don't want to keep you here any more than we have, or we'll eat up more time. But what else you want, want to talk about on this stuff?
0: The uh, I guess the only other thing that is kind of interesting to me about uh, Ukraine right now that we haven't already covered in uh, one forum or another is that um, – the the propaganda uh aspect of it which has been interesting to see to see how effective ukraine has been at telling its story and how very like very unexpectedly ineffective russia has been at telling its story um save among like again fascists yeah. or reactionaries or whatever else and i don't know if it's like yeah, I mean, it's it's that seeing that happen has been really interesting, and both in terms of what Ukraine has has told, because we see their story, we know their story. Like, I don't I, I don't know what's happening with Kherson right now. That's crazy. Like, I've heard some people say it's about to collapse. I've heard other people say it's going to collapse in a month. I've heard other people say actually it's not going too well for the Ukrainians. But the fact that I don't know like what's happening in Kherson.
1: is is the rarity
0: wild yeah at the same time we just saw like day by day line get almost encircled and what the ukrainians did was really smart they left a fucking they left an escape valve and they let the russians run right out and they worked as much of that line as they could they hit it with artillery they shot it up i'm sure a lot of russians escaped the bag but not all of them did you know a lot of them got hurt a lot of them got killed and the ones that did escape are probably pretty fucking pissed off about it
1: right now. They're probably I'm, like, what the fuck were we just there well, for? Well, and I, I think your your point about like so the Ukrainians have, have had the the edge on Russia on all this basically since twenty fourteen. And Russia has never put any effort into it. Indeed the first I'd say a couple of weeks of the war, they even to their own domestic audience, they hadn't put any propaganda spin on it. And then they came down so ham handed two weeks into the war that it's like, dude, you for a good month and a half, even the Russians knew they were being lied to, even the most like ardent nationalists. Like you're lying to me on Russian television. Like I'm being lied to. I'm being absolutely totally bullshit. And I know it. So that kind of basic failure of the, of government, I mean, it goes back to like, it's, they were a domestically oriented military apparatus, and then they got because it goes back to most people, even in Russia, apparently didn't think Putin was going to really launch this war. And now you ask them to do this thing that they didn't believe was going to happen, and it just it shows it just shows all the way around that it's it's a it's a it's a failure and it's a failure because you couldn't get anybody to buy into anything for a variety of reasons. But that was the key end of it all was that no one bought into what you were going to do. And now you're trying to hammer it through and it's just not going anywhere. But you're right about Kursan, because like we talked about before, the Ukrainians have been advertising like their advancement, their their how things are going. The problem with Kursan was or is, in my opinion, is that they telegraphed that one for so long that the Russians, you know, you couldn't can't help it. You give people time and you can only put so many articles in New York times and in the world and <laughs> their Spiegel and Russian RT before they're going to figure something out for a defense. So I know they've smashed him pretty hard, but I don't know kind of what the Russian res- results is going to be. I mean, overall Adrian, I still think that my little winter war comparison is what's going to hold up. I think after the Russians have brutalized the Ukrainians uh, more and have paid an incredible price to do it, I think that basically it's going to look like that. Like Zelensky's going to have to go away for a while, like Man- Mon- Monerheim or mannerschmidt I forget what the guy's name was for the Finns, and they're going to lose some territory, but they're going to get to still be a nation. Um, the downside, the difference though, is that I think that the Russians long-term aren't going to be okay with Ukraine being its own thing. Because unlike Finland, which they never thought of as like the Finns are part of, no, there's none of that shit. There really is a movement in Russia where they really do view Ukrainian identity as as a a fucking fiction that should never exist. it's like Gogol and all these people were Russians. Like just this whole vibe of like, you're just, you're, you're ancient Russ, you are us, you are not Ukrainian. That does not exist. That is bullshit fed to you by Western Europe, propaganda kind of a thing that was not a problem in the winter war the finns speak their own fucking language they were never a part of the russian people they don't yeah so that that but that, they're not some ancient heritage at all really so that that thing is still what i think will end up being there but i do worry about ukraine long term precisely because it didn't work out like the Finns had them is rough and then they spent 50 years basically uh, Cal, I would say Cal time, but being very incredibly wary of their neighbor, and now they're in NATO because after this shit they saw in Ukraine, like we're not going to do that alone again.
0: My take is, I I, I still think um, Russia is not going to be able to hold onto any territories on mainland Ukraine, Crimea. It's tough to say for the reasons that you did uh, that, that that you brought up. I think that's that's that would that will actually be difficult for Ukraine to take, and Russia will fight hard. I, that's the only place where I even see the the like the distant possibility of a nuclear weapon being employed. Um, I think uh, I I don't know what the timeline is. I've I, I burned a lot of credibility like coming up with a timeline, and I don't know. I have no idea how yeah. that stuff. Like, what, no,
1: what, I, I I don't know when it'll end. I know he's committed to some rough winter.
0: there is, you know, in, in Russian history, it has happened before where at some point the country decides that it's had enough of fighting a war. And then it just sort of fights with itself. Like the people who want to keep fighting fight the people who don't want to keep fighting. And that can end in a variety of different ways. Um, but I just don't think the military they have right now Unless they are legitimately training a secret military somewhere, it's got to be like three or four hundred thousand. <laughs> oh dude. man, I, I'm. You I
1: know? mean, no, I, I I concur. I don't think they are. I'm. I mean, people forget that the U.S. deployed soldiers to Russia after the revolution in 1919. I forget what the operation was. Shit really happened. Um, we'll see how. I, I think there's a possibility of that. It, it to me, it's. It, A, it's all dependent upon the, the stuff on the ground. If the Ukrainians can't or just can't do it, can't do aspects of it, um, um, and then they keep trading, and then the, the you know basically you keep trading for the same dirt enough times, eventually people start going, okay, so what are we fucking doing here, right? Like if you know that like we're taking it this week, but next week they're gonna be back and you do that, a dozen or so times, that patience aspect of it will be different. But to guess the timeline now is nuts. I think Russia is committed so much to this. Um, I mean, the only thing I know for sure is they're going to insist on a cold-ass winter in Europe. They've made that crystal fucking clear. It's October 1st. They have uh, March. We're going to see what happens. And, I, I, and, I, and that's the other thing, right? Like in December and in January, who's fighting in Eastern Europe? Do you want to even play that game? Because that's a great way to get dudes hurt. So I don't know. I I have no idea what the timeline is going to look like beyond the commitment to a cold winter in Europe. And then the
0: last thing I'd say is, you know, talking about where, how the war ends, the war won't end with Ukraine fielding a military because Ukraine, as long as Ukraine fields a competent military, it will attack Russia. And nobody can stop them from doing that. Like they were again in March, 2022, they were filling up glass bottles with Molotov cocktails. Which means Russia needs a military not just capable of holding the territories that it is annexed, but it needs to be able to go and defeat the Ukrainian Ukrainian military wherever they are. That means taking and holding Kyiv which is like a strategic objective for a force of no less than three or 400,000 soldiers.
1: Uh, I'd say a million, I mean, 300,000 American soldiers, maybe, but a million of pretty much anybody else.
0: That's it took the USSR 850,000 the last time they had to take Kyiv. And that's why they built it into the fortress that it is today. So they're going to have to do all the things they suck at, in terms of logistics, in terms well, of
1: training, we haven't even
0: talked we, we, Ukraine.
1: Well, and the thing we haven't even talked about, because it's talked about all over everywhere else, but the attrition of equipment and resource like forget manpower. Like there's a reason why you don't hear about Russian sorties and air power anymore. It's because whatever they had. Is a fucking shell of itself to start with. All of their main artillery tank stuff, uh, clearly they're being retread and repurposed because and, they don't have enough of it now to conduct any of these open field operations. I don't know how many 155 pieces they've lost. It's like a fucking show on Oryx's account of like, oh, they're down. I mean, it's, it's, they've lost at least half, if not more, of what they had. Of, and now, well, they lost all the stuff they had that was in good working order. And now they're on the shit that was kind of shelled or shelved for uh years at a time you know their their attrition piece for the russian military is a disaster and then the ukrainians oh people talk about it like they're the proof that what you really want is a combined set of Western, NATO, and Russian arms because it's all going pretty well for them on that part. Having certain having a javelin with a dude carrying AK 47 or whatever the fuck it is now is a great idea, it seems to work out fantastic. Um, and and they've they've got basically yeah they've got the U.S. backing them and this is what happens right like okay you get high Mars and now you can take out these huge train convoys from even further away more accurately with less of an issue, and I see, you know, talking about the reactionary left, there there's an aspect of it that is so concerned and with some justification about like the creep of the U.S. intelligence military industrial complex whatever you want to call it that that set up like i think this is a glenn greenwald thing they're so concerned about that creep that it could drag us into a war because they these are the kind of dudes who can who they keep names like they they you know like zahari gets killed in kabul it's because we don't forget like there's a dude there was a dude somewhere in the cia who's like i'm not i, I, I remember you I, I didn't forget about you buddy and knew he was going to be there uh which is its own thing but my point in all of it is that there's that aspect of the left that is I think with some justification, worried about us being directly involved in a direct confrontation with Russia in overt and conventional warfare, which I get. I get the word, but you don't have to support Putin at the same time. You don't have to be like, yeah, you know, Ukraine needs to give up, and Zelensky is clearly just. I mean, sometimes they say stuff. He's he's manipulating the truth. I'm like, he's a fucking president of a country fighting for its life in a war. Yes, he's absolutely going to engage in propaganda at a, as as high a level, and he's an actor. On top of it all else, at a personal <laughs> core level, he is a fucking actor comic. He is totally going to do all the things that you fucking hate to try to accomplish the goal that he is trying to keep you know, Ukraine as whole as he can through this whole process. And yes, that's absolutely going to happen. You can't be shocked and you can't take it as some kind of sign that he's a bad faith actor. This is exactly what any rational person would do.
0: Yeah, that's, that's exactly right. And I mean, for me, I I always thought as a leftist, um, you know, and now as, again, as a sort of a, a, a center leftist that, you know, this is, if you believe in, if you believe in the shit that, that leftism is based on, that socialism is based on the idea that a person has the human rights and the agency to be entrusted with absolute political power on an individual level, that you have a vote and that that's politically consequential and that you can be trusted to vote intelligently. Like the whole system depends on that. If people don't have that, then you'll want monarchy or you'll want aristocracy or something else. But if you believe in that, then man, the Ukrainians are your people. That's literally what they're fighting for. They're fighting for their own fucking destiny. And it, it keeps coming at them. You know, they're, they're, they're fighting to defend it. They're not going into Russia to like inconvenience, destitute Russian farmers. They just want to not be fucking hassled anymore. I don't see how any any true leftist couldn't look at that and say, fuck Russia, fuck that asshole Putin in the same breath that they said that about George W. Bush with Iraq. it's like, Dude, he doesn't have a nuclear program right now. Like, what are we doing? We're in Afghanistan already. You know, let's now, let's close that one out. Okay? Well, I mean, I, How many and wars I, do we need?
1: I think with I think Hitchens's quote on this is pretty accurate he talks about as a leftist, you're gonna find yourself if you're on the left, center, far left, whatever, you're gonna find yourself torn between the anti-war left and the anti-totalitarian left. Because you can't have you, you you can't, you know, you just can't have it both ways. You have to deal with You're going to be anti-totalitarian, which means you're going to be pro-war in cases where a despotic dictator, particularly from the right kind of thing, is going to come at you. And you're going to be anti-war in pretty much every other circumstance. But that's just what's going to be. I think that some of this, again, is like the left's, like I said, creeping uh, worries about the how how stuff can get out of control that's a reasonable thing again that doesn't mean you have to support Putin the support of Putin from leftists is like this opportunistic weird thing that I I don't want to call it reactionary because it seems so pandering um that they they're just they're on the left but they're just picking this point to troll in a in a way um and then, like, and I want to, do, I do want to do this because I, I, I keep hearing how people say, "Oh, well, when you talk about fascism, you're really talking about Nazism." You might be right. Like, people say that a lot. Uh, there's a guy, Michael Moynihan, always makes this point, point. and you're not wrong. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't start talking about fascism, like it actually has existed in the past, because it doesn't just kind of like, you know, it, there, Mussolini was a socialist who became a fascist. Like, there's a whole set of of parameters on fascism that yeah absolutely gets subsumed under nazism but it's like how do i put it it's subsumed under nazism because nazism is its own branch right like a nazi how do i it's it's a inductive reasoning right a nazi is as a fascist therefore fascism looks like that's not it's not how it is it's a branch underneath fascism you go up to fat to to fascism and it looks like Portugal, and it looks like Mussolini's Italy, and it looks kind of monarchical in certain circumstances. Um, Franco, uh, stuff like that. It's okay to say we want to talk about those aspects of it now because they are more relevant and more accurate at describing the situation, and we don't need to make it about the Nazis. We can call someone a fascist, and it doesn't mean they're a Nazi. It means that they believe in kind of these social political tenets of fascism, and. It's like when you get into a conversation with people about like racist and they kind of lump all racists together. I'm like, "Well, wait a minute. Like, you know, a racist like uh, you know, a KKK member and a Nazi member are two very different things. Like if you look at what they say, they have two very different belief structures and societal structures. They're very different. But they're both racist." And they're both white supremacists. So like underneath these, these envelopes, you know, so a racist doesn't necessarily have to be a white supremacist, right? Like you just go through and there's this weird taxonomy that happens where we kind of flatten it all and try to lump it all together. And I do encourage people to like, go read about fascism, read about Salazar, read about Franco, read about Mussolini, who's probably the most famous actual fascist of the last hundred years and realize that it's not Hitler. It's not Goebbels. It's not that. It's it's got it's a lot of similarities but they're not the same thing. Good place to yeah. end
0: a, a long, winding, but uh, characteristically enjoyable
1: conversation. <laughs> Thanks, man. I'm gonna stop recording stuff now. If you like this episode, please rate, subscribe, and tell your friends. My stuffies like this. They're gonna (laughs) strong.